Built Not Born, episode 53. I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Nikita Ren Thigpen. Nikita Ren Thigpen is the best-selling author of the book Selfish, Permission to Pause, Live, Love, and Launch Your Way to Joy. Nikita is the CEO of ThigPro Balance and Relationship Management Institute. Nikita's work is focused on how to heal traumas while balancing the work-life relationship. In our conversation today, Nikita tells us the story of how she was abandoned by her mother when she was nine years old, how she was woke up each day with people being thrown across the house, and how at 15, her mother, who was a madam, tried to sell her to fund her drug habit. It's a remarkable story of someone that dealt with trauma, set up boundaries, became a rebel, and is now helping others live remarkable lives. It was so great to have Nikita on the show. I hope you enjoy. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Nikita Renthigpen, best-selling author, CEO, and rebel with a cause. And remember, life is built, not born. Nikita Ren Thigpen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joe. I am honored to be here. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. Nikita, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. I activate power couples, married women entrepreneurs, and a few bold leaders that are ultimately ready to recalibrate their life and own their right to be intentionally selfish so they can live fully. Wow. Intentionally selfish. I want to dive deep into that, how busy professionals can create space to live the life they're looking for. We could talk about boundaries a little bit. I know you've done some work on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And your book, Selfish. Permission to Pause, Live, Love, and Laugh Your Way to Joy, which has phenomenal reviews on Amazon. But before we do that, I want to go back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Mm. So from birth through 12, I lived in Mount Airy. I think you're familiar with that area, right outside of Chestnut Hill, West Oak Lane. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to South Philly for my primary years, as I call them, where I grew up fast in the streets of South Philly. You learn a few things or two when you're a light-skinned girl from Mount Airy and you get jumped a couple times. So I learned a lot and then moved back to basically Mount Airy to have my son while I was in college at Drexel University. If you go back to your time in, say, Mount Airy when you're maybe 10, 12 years old, what was it like around the house? What did the dinner table look like at night? We definitely didn't sit at the dinner table. So I was ultimately raised by my biological maternal grandmother and her husband, my step-grandfather, who was an alcoholic, violent, and ultimately a pedophile. So there was not a loving, engaging, affirming household. It was wake up to the alarm of someone being thrown across the house, cussing, fussing, And being reminded that you weren't meant for much in this world, that you were stupid, that you weren't going to be anything, or that I would be, quote unquote, just like my mother. So it definitely wasn't the kumbaya that a lot of really healthy souls come from. 
wow, what was that like? Waking up every day to something like that. What type of impression does that make on a 10, 12-year-old person? That is so hard. Yeah, it really was. Uh, So my mother actually abandoned me when I was nine, when she left me with them. I discovered her bag of goodies, which were drugs. Remember the D.A.R.E. program in, in elementary school? So, you know, we grew up understanding just say no and what to look for and what not to touch. And all those things I found right in my closet in the room that I shared with my mother at our my grandmother slash her mother's house. So I told in an effort to try to save her, they gave her a choice to go to rehabilitation or to leave. She chose to leave and they said, you can't take her as in me, your daughter. And she said, well, keep her then. And she left. And I heard that sitting at the top of the steps, which was ultimately devastating. I didn't know how much impact it would have on my life as I grew up. What did happen in that single moment is in my spirit, which of course that little, I didn't understand all the things. I literally heard that I will be 75% different. I don't know where the number came from. I didn't even understand what it meant, but it was there and it became an anchor for me to go by. As I got older, I would understand that there was some good and I've always been a strength-based person. I could always be optimistic and find some good in the midst of all the crazy, wacky, and hurtful things. So now I understand it was that other 25%. But at the time, my focus was, I just have to be different. I have to be better. I have to get out of here. So my escape was being a people pleaser, being kind, hoping that people wouldn't hurt me, being close enough to people that they would share with me some problem they had so that I could ultimately fix and provide a solution so I would be seen as enough and resourceful. Ultimately, as I'd age and go through therapy and all the things, I know that all the problems I wanted to fix for other people was the nine-year-old Nikita trying to fix her parents, trying to help my father who had been in and out of jail, my mother who had been in and out of multiple rehabs and different homes and homeless and all kinds of things that would occur over her life. So my nine to 12-year-old self was really delusionally optimistic of what the world would offer me. And I'm grateful for those delusions because it made me crazy enough to see that there was hope within me if I was just willing to hold on. Wow. Where does that come from? Your step-grandfather was Mm -hmm. a pedophile. There was Mm -hmm. violence in the house. There was Mm -hmm. drugs in the house. Mm -hmm. They, They gave your mom an offer, basically clean up, or leave your child. And she's, mm-hmm. I just want to leave my child. Mm-hmm. But then your response is not to do drugs or drink or be violent yourself. Yours is I'm different. I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I want to help. Yeah. Where does that come from? Honestly, I feel like it was just a protective nature. And I'm careful with that word just, right? Because when we use it, sometimes we oversimplify the reality of our journey, the trials, the tribulations, and even the triumphs that come. So I am careful when I say that. But as a nine-year-old, not understanding that I had guardian angels protecting me, I was raised Jehovah Witness. So there was a different view of the world. I'm a Christian minister now, but at the time I, I grew up very different. A lot of things were suppressed, both literally and figuratively. We weren't 
allowed to praise the Lord. You know, that's not how you act in the kingdom hall, at least not in the halls that my grandmother was taking me. We were raised to keep everything to ourselves. You don't share anything. What goes on in this house stays in this house. All the things that a lot of parents across the globe, across cultures, share with their children. A lot of those things were in me to suppress but there was this rebellious spirit that I always had. I was the kid that touched the stove. It was hot. You <laughs> smacked my hand and said, don't touch. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. How hot is it? Like, you know, to, to go again, I always had this rebelliousness that I still hold on to in a different way. Mm-hmm. I learned to be less reckless than mm-hmm. I was growing up because God knows I went through a reckless period. But that rebellion, that difference, that delusional aspect of me to know that there was something else that even though my life was showing me otherwise, my household was telling me that it didn't exist, that I wasn't good enough, that all I could do was obey commands. That's what my life was telling me. But there was something inside of me, a knowing that I truly can't explain to this day that was pulling me forth and literally leading me out of it. What I had to do was to be brave enough to always see it through the muddy waters of the chaos, which was my actual life experience. Mm-hmm. That force pulling you forward, how would you define it? Where, where do you think it came from and where do you think you found it? Yeah, today I call it God. As a nine-year-old, I was just like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. you know, some, yeah. something's out here helping me yep. um, because I didn't quite believe in the God that I was being raised in because there was too much of a juxtaposition. You're telling me to behave and to wear a long skirt and don't be fresh and don't be fast. But then there's things happening to me right here in this home from the very people that are telling me, don't be fra- fast, don't be fresh, right? There, there was so much conflict and what I was being told versus what I was seeing. As I got older and I have an aunt who is amazing. She just celebrated her 30 year anniversary with my favorite uncle in the world. And I was able to officiate and renew those vows. When she was younger, when she decided to turn her life over to God, she embraced me. She didn't leave me in the house. She had went to the military. So she wasn't there for a lot of the things that happened to me when I was younger. But as soon as she had some legs under her, so to speak, at 22, 23, she was like, come on, you're coming with me. Get out of the house. Like, let's go. And even though we, you know, I'm a, I'm a girl. So two queens in one in kingdom can be a challenge, right? Like I definitely challenged her as I grew up. She's older than me almost by decade. There was definitely a lot of push and pull, but I still held on to the reality that she was a safety net if I allowed her to be. And that was one of the people that really did help me. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned a few moments ago, you went through a reckless period. Define reckless. Like, What was that? What did that period mean to you? <laughs> Woo, Hansi, how much time you got? So my reckless period didn't look like promiscuity or drugs or alcohol. Those things I was actually really afraid of. One thing that came out of the horrible language that came from my daily waking every day was me being afraid that I would self-actualize what they were telling me I would become, that Mm. I would be loose and I would be an alcoholic and I would be a drug addict and all the things. So outside of a few small moments when I was younger, I did have a 15-year-old period with a friend that we literally walked from Mount Airy to North Philly. And if you, for anyone listening to this, if you know anything about that distance, 
since let's just say young legs are brave <laughs> and courageous. We had no idea, right? When I was 15, I did have one drink. If you remember the drink called Sex on the Beach. Uh, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I had that. And I learned that I had zero tolerance for alcohol because <laughs> I was a babbling mess. So I never touched a lick of liquor or wine or anything till I was 30 years old. I had wow. my first glass of wine, not because people were telling me it was bad, not because I was hanging with a circle of people who didn't drink, but I was really afraid that the addiction, which we do know is a, you have a genetic predisposition when both of your parents um, are drug addicts, and they still are to this day in 2022. Wow. wow. Because of that, I was really afraid of me. And that would become another anchor that would lead my life. My biggest fear in this world was always me. Me being angry. What did that look like? Me being uh out of control with a substance, whatever that substance is, what does that look like? So my reckless period looked like talking back to my grandmother. Um, I never physically put my hands on anyone or anything. I never cursed. There were just some things that innate, I just understood was beyond disrespectful, but I was definitely the one that she said, you can't do cheerleading. And I went and forged her name and did it anyway. <laughs> or, you know, you, you can't go to your friend's house. That's four doors over. Cause quote unquote, that's a fast friend. And I would go over there and come back in and make up something really mean. I would just say, well, I was with a boy. I wasn't with a boy. I was down the street with a girl, but I would say provocative things just to stir the pot mm -hmm. because I felt like if you guys expect the worst of me anyway, then let me just tell you that I'm being the worst and doing the worst, even though that wasn't my reality. So that my reckless period looked like being extremely dramatic for no good reason other mm -hmm. than stirring the pot. And I definitely, I fought a lot as a young kid. You and I were talking about that in the green room. Mm -hmm. Before we got started, I was a skinny, big head, little stick figure from Mount Airy, birth through 12. And then my mother moved out of a shelter um, when I was 12 years old, when she was pregnant with my youngest brother. I'm the oldest of five. And I knew that I had to help her. I, I just knew I had to help her. There was a part of me that wanted to get out of the house that I was in with my step-grandfather who was sick and ailing by this point. And there was another part of me that just knew she would damage him, mm -hmm. my, my younger brother. So I moved in with her 15. I had to make my first decision to be selfish. It was one that I didn't forgive myself for, for so many years. And so I realized the grace behind it. I had to choose myself at 15. My mother was also a madam and she kept wow. tr trying to sell me in exchange for drugs and different things. And there would be fights. There would be me running away. There would be me taking my brother and going to the third floor rooftop of a brownstone. There would be all kinds of really horrid, reckless things that I was doing to save me and him. And I finally just realized, I was like, I'm going to die here. I'm either going to die or I'm going to be under the jail because there's only so much running I can do. There's only so many times I can pull out a knife and threaten a man to get away from me. There's so many times I can argue with this woman who's locking me out of the house at four o'clock in the morning with this infant saying, I'm having a party. You go figure it out <laughs> and find somewhere to be. And I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. She was stealing my money for school, my transportation. My school was in Chestnut Hill and you know where that is. I'm walking from South Philly to Chestnut Hill at 15 just wow. to get to school. It was just so much that I was like, I'm literally going to die here or I'm going to end up in jail because I'm going to kill someone. Wow. So I 
I chose to leave. And my grandmother, my step-grandfather had passed by this point. My grandmother had severe mental health issues, but I knew that was the lesser of the two evils. So I asked her if I could come back. She said, yeah. I asked her if I could bring my brother. She said, absolutely not. I'm not raising another child and you're in school. What are you going to do? And I knew I couldn't drop out. I knew the only thing I had was my education. And my I always had two, three, four jobs since I was 12 years old. So I knew that I could not be, quote unquote, strapped with a kid. And there was nothing I could do for him until I got on my feet. So I made a decision to leave him. And wow. that, Joe, was the biggest selfish decision I had ever made. It was the first adult decision I had ever made for myself. And it's absolutely 100% the one that saved my life. So when you left, where'd you go? I did go back to Mount Airy. I went to my grandmother's house for about two years. I spent a couple of, I tried to get out as much as possible to babysit at this aunt's house or that aunt's house for the summer. And then my ultimate escape was being in the dorm as a freshman at Drexel Mm -hmm. University. Where did you go to school? For undergrad, Drexel University. Drexel. Okay, great school. Wow, man. What a crazy story. Yeah. Uh, And you just went uh, like literally the opposite way of what you saw growing up. It reminds me, I believe Colin Powell told this story once. He told a story, and I'm going to mess it up. The premise was there was two drug addicted parents and they had twins. And then basically one twin became an alcoholic drug addicted. One became a a doctor. Mm -hmm. And then they interviewed him each years later. And uh, I said, how'd you wind up where you were? And the drug addict goes, my my parents were drug addicts. I had no choice. Mm -hmm. And then they asked the physician and he said, my parents are drug addicts. I have no choice. That's Mm -hmm. why I became a physician. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they both said they had no choice. One had to go hard one way. One had to go hard the other way. And, uh, it's amazing. So that's a remarkable story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Wow. Moving on here. When did you decide that not only am I going to dial my life in, I want to help families. I want to help other people. What pushed you to social work? How'd you start helping others? Where, where'd that come about? Yeah, I will say the helping spirit was always there. It just was a perverted version of it when I was the people pleaser, right? Looking for ways to to help my mother in love. She's been in my life since I was 13, even though I didn't start dating her son till we were 17. He's ultimately my husband today. But she used to say and tease me all the time. My nickname is Kia from growing up. And she would say, Kia will come in here with a best friend that she met on the subway. And she knows their social security number, their life story and go on and tease because I had an innate uh, ability to hold space for people. That Mm -hmm. was always there. I would just be sitting, minding my business, you know, back in the day with your CD player and your Walkman on, minding my business and someone would sit next to me and ultimately share something life-altering that was going. And at 13, 14, 15, I would be able to support and help and heal in some Mm -hmm. ways. So I knew that was there for me. My childhood dream was to be a pediatrician with a side office, like to my house, a private suite that would be my psychology practice. So I always knew that helping, listening, leading was there. 
I ultimately went to school at Drexel to be a pre-med student, but I dropped pre-med when I got to organic chemistry and was like, yeah, I'm not about this life. (laughs) I don't like that. That, that's the barrier right there, that chemistry. That is the always, every physician says that's the barrier. Awesome. It definitely made me be like, okay, no. But my I already, already had my major set. I was already in it. I honestly thought I was going to go straight into a five-year PsyD program okay. right after my, I did five years at Drexel because of the triple major and the co-op program that they have. Uh, what, what turned that for me was twofold. By my sophomore year, I'm a mama now. My husband and I remember that storm in 96. Drexel closed classes and I didn't skip classes for no man, but they closed classes that day and my man was stuck in the dorm with me. So hence, I now have a nearly 26-year-old son. So there's that. And never skipped a beat, stayed in school the whole time. But when I graduated in 2000 from undergraduate and had already been accepted to Westchester for their PsyD clinical program, I was pregnant with twins. And I made a decision during that pregnancy that I didn't. My son was literally with me in the back of lecture halls, me breastfeeding him, the whole thing. I didn't want that experience again with infants. And now I have a toddler at home um, and I'm married at this point. I just didn't want that. So I, I checked out a few things. I talked to a few professors that were really hard on me that didn't pull any punches. And one, Dr. Douglas Porpora, I took him to lunch and said, what do you see from me? And he said, Nikita, you are not a psychologist. You do not look at people and just see people. You look holistically. You're looking at the environment and their culture and their community. Honestly, you're somewhere between an anthropologist and a social worker. Call me dainty. I didn't want to dig in dirt. And that was my thought for anthropology, right? For everything that we had learned up until that point. So social work was the the ultimate. But I've always been clinical. He knew from the different classes I took that I was a great diagnostician, which he told me. He was like, that's the path that I would do for you. And when I did decide to go, it was really to figure out me. I wanted to know what was wrong with my family. (laughs) Like, why couldn't they get it together? All these amazing, strong women with these bright ideas. My mother is literally a mathematical genius who's a crackhead. Like that is the reality of that juxtaposition. And I just could not understand like your example of the twins. How does one have such gifts and such possibility and so much potential, but go the other way? Now, going through the process, I would learn that for her, it was medication. She was abused by that very person that she left me with that abused me. She had to medicate from all that trauma and all the things that will come after that because of different choices, as well as different things that she did because of her illness that would come along. And the same for my father. So selfishly, I'll say it was really to figure out my family and me and to try to make sure I didn't make those same mistakes with my own kids and my own husband. You know, a lot of great ideas start from within. Get to understand yourself. What's uh, Socrates or Aristotle? Know thyself. Mm -hmm. And you get to know, understand yourself and where you're coming from before you could help others. You know, it's almost like putting your uh, airplane mask on before you start handing out airplane masks on the plane, right? A thousand percent. So true. Why is it so hard for so many people to create like a work-life balance that they love? Here's what I see. People that are crushing it in the world, like like mansions and beach Mm -hmm. houses, 
but they're home for 20 minutes a day. Yeah. They're never home. They're hardly at their kids' events because they're working. They're so busy. Yeah. And, and, like, and they're providing phenomenally, but yeah. they're home like, like 5% of the time. Yeah. Right. So why is it so hard to get the work-life balance right? I can relate to the, the latter parenting example that you gave, because that was me before I stepped into the next level of myself. And there's been multiple levels. What happens for a lot of those people that are extremely ambitious, high achieving, go-getters, you, you don't have to play guessing games with them. You tell them to do something to get to the next level and they are getting it done, period, right? There's so much validation and uh, padding of the back that we do literally and figuratively in this country that almost fills their cup a little bit more with a little bit more dopamine. Every single time that you say, oh, wow, how'd you do that, Joe? Oh, I don't know how you handle that. You and your wife are doing it, right? When you hear that, even if you are exhausted and can barely keep your left eye open when someone tells you that, it almost makes you perk up because it validates that you're doing the work and you're doing it well. I know for me, me trying to be that 75% different, which was my lead, I wanted to work hard. I maintained those three, four, five jobs while in a master's program, while in a doctor program, while doing clinicals, while having a family, doing all of the things because I was driven to give them something different. Now, to your point, it doesn't have to be as different as coming from such a deeply traumatic family than it is as Maybe you just didn't have, you got told no too many times when you were a kid and you didn't want to have to do that with your kids. You wanted the option to teach them yes or no, but knowing that you still had the option to give them a yes, that might be the driver for some people. Typically we're led by things we didn't have, or we didn't feel that were fulfilled until we realize the real come up is understanding that when you heal that inner child, that person in you that feels like you weren't enough, like you weren't worthy, that your parents who were well-to-do, who gave you a great education, but didn't have five minutes for you, that they actually still loved you in their own way. Once you heal and you do that, you can change how you look at what work-life balance is in the first place. So I redefined it with a formula that I teach to my clients and everyone around the world when I'm speaking on stages. The work-life balance myth that we hear. There's no work-life balance. It's work-life harmony. It's work-life integration. Like we hear all the semantics of that all the time. I'm like, listen, it's semantics. I get it. At the end of the day, when you know that you are admitting the truth of what you really want out of life and then creating the boundaries so you can achieve that truth as your reality, that's your balance. And you just have to be honest with what is your truth? If your truth is, well, my parents said that I would never be X. So that's why I'm going so hard, which was my truth, right? Or my parents said, I have to be a lawyer. I have to be a doctor. You must be a scientist in order to be you know, recognized as an authority in this world. But you really wanted to be a shoe designer or, or paint or teach martial arts and, and feel really good empowering people to be strong in their body and their mind. But your parents or your old coach or someone somewhere planted a script in you that said you couldn't do it or you must only do this one route. If that's the truth, then your boundaries that you create are for that. And those boundaries look like not having enough sleep, not having enough time for the person that you craved for all those years that you wanted to be in a, a deep monogamous relationship. Now you have her or him 
and they're complaining that you're never around, that you're always traveling, that you're always busy, that you never put down your phone. But those reasons are because we're led by our truth. So sometimes it's often that we have to recalibrate what is our truth, breaking free from the expectations of other people, including those private expectations of our old self. That 22-year-old Nikita wanted something completely different than what the 30-year-old in three years of therapy, understanding her truth, (laughs) decided that she wanted. And that became the new trajectory. So it's really looking at what is your truth? What do you really want? If you want to be a mogul, then let's create some boundaries that allow you to be a well-rounded whole mogul, not just someone with a bunch of money in the account. And then you die and your kids are like, wish I knew them, but got that check, (laughs) right? Like you want more for that, for your legacy. You mentioned boundaries. Why is it so hard to set boundaries? Boundaries sound so basic. They're so powerful. Boundaries from interacting with certain people to where your life stops and your work starts. How do you set it when you walk in, the day's done? One of the books I read, it was, it's so common. When you're at home, you're thinking about the work that's undone. Mm-hmm. When you're at work, you're thinking about home and your kids are growing up and you're not there. You're always at the other place mentally where your body yeah. is. Yeah, that's partially because we're not being fully present, right? Like that Mm. mindfulness that the world is talking about, which is an old clinical concept from a certain type of therapy. That is often coming up for most of us because we have FOMO, right? It's the fear of missing out on multiple things. And the fear of missing out, some people might think, oh, that's just about a material or house, a car, a boat. Not necessarily. The fear of missing out could be the fear of not staying ahead of the game. If you were always the person who came in early to work, who had the the weekly reports done three days to a week ahead, but now you have you know other responsibilities. Maybe you're caregiving for an elderly parent, or you have you're nursing an injury, so you've slowed down in how you process information. You might find yourself overcompensating and having that fear of missing out from the way your old self used to be able to handle it. Don't get me started with physical fitness because I know you can speak to that, right? Like your 25-year-old self probably could jump five buildings or something where right now in your wisdom self, when you're wiser, (laughs) you might be like, okay, I got to scale those buildings and not necessarily jump those buildings. And there might be a part of you that fears missing out competing with your old self. So there's Mm -hmm. that contextual part. But if I had to bring all of it down to something really simple, The huge challenge that a lot of people have with boundaries is they see them as limiting Mm -hmm. instead of expansive. Your boundaries are there to be expansive, to help you create the spaciousness so you can literally obtain the truth of who you really are and who you're supposed to be coming. So if I say, you know what, my truth is I want to be a secret philanthropist. And I want libraries in the names of other people who have helped me along my journey. I never want anyone to know what I'm doing. All right. Well, that means I have to have a certain amount of bank, right? I also have to have a certain amount of connections in order to make things like that happen anonymously. So I have to create boundaries around my personal habits. Nikita, are you getting enough sleep for you to be able to to be awake at five o'clock in the morning for the connections you're making in India? right? On their time zone. Are you exercising enough so you have 
energy and health enough to travel to Paris and shake a hand and kiss a baby with the right person that can get you in the right table. I have to have boundaries around my relationships, not, oh, I'm not letting anyone in. Mm -mm. Expansive. Mm -hmm. Who are the people that not only could be your clients, but who could be your power partners? Who could be an advisor at the seat of your table that could actually pour into you the way you pour into so many other people? So you start looking at things different when you see boundaries as expansive, as liberating. But we're trained to think boundaries are just there to protect you, to keep everything bad out and to keep you safe. Well, they can do that, but they really do that as a side effect, not as the full purpose for why they exist. Thanks for sharing that. Are you familiar with Seth Godin, the marketing writer, the business author? And so Seth talks a lot about boundaries, just like you are. Mm -hmm. And he mentions like boundaries are where the interesting work comes from because each of us have a unique set of boundaries with time we have to be home, with time we get up, Mm -hmm. whatever your boundary is. Mm -hmm. We're like, well, I can't do X cause of X. You line up all your boundaries and and then you operate in those boundaries. And that's where your interesting work comes from. You you bounce off your boundaries and that gives you your unique idiosyncratic work. Lean into your boundaries. You know what I mean? And embrace them. Make sense? Absolutely. A thousand percent agree. How about this? You mentioned about creating space. You wrote a lot on that. How does someone create space? Everyone's at capacity. Everyone's got kids or they have crazy jobs and I don't have time. They don't have time to go to the gym for 20 minutes. They have no time to take a walk. Let's go for a walk. Can't do it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Everyone's just too busy. Like, How can you create space, actually make space for the real stuff? The question is this, how do you make space for what you want when you feel like you're already at capacity? Oh yeah. That's one of my favorite questions. So thank you for asking. And the three word answer is literally be intentionally selfish. I redefine that word to mean a personal, intimate gift to create your joy. It is your personal gift to yourself to create joy your way. And gift is an acronym. I won't go super, super deep into it. I'll just kind of do a a light touch. But gift, G-I-F-T, like the gift you give someone, because this is the gift you're giving yourself, is obviously you want to stay in a space of gratitude. That's what the G is for. But for me, it's a little bit further. We hide behind gratitude. We'll say, oh, I'm so grateful. How dare I want more? I'm so grateful. Uh, I, I don't deserve anything else. I have so much more than other people. I believe that I serve a God that created this universe and the multiverse that is limitless. And I can't possibly fathom that my God that I serve would have created all this and given me access to all of that so that I could just have the little that I do. And I am appreciative and I am grateful and I honor the little so that I can appreciate more, not so that I can stay small with the little. So not hiding behind gratefulness is part of that process, because that's usually a huge part of why we feel like we're at capacity, because we've put in an, an invisible limit glass or bar or ceiling on us. I already have two weeks of vacation. Who says you can't take eight? Now, yes, you might work in the the confinements of a system that you have to navigate and be creative with, but creating that system looks like the I in gift, which is imagining more. Mm -hmm. A true example of that, I have a very full day today. I just came back from a week vacation. My schedule is bananas in the best way possible. And before this interview, I said, all right, I got about 
20 minutes plus 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So I could do five minutes to the pool, five minutes back, 20 minutes to get in the pool. Not much time, but it makes all the difference in how I feel about this day. Mm -hmm. I got to relax for 20 minutes and do my moving across the pool. That made me feel like I had exercise and, and good energy, got out of the pool, hurried up, showered, dressed. Now I feel like I just had a miniature vacation. I didn't go anywhere. I went across the parking lot of the apartment community that Mm -hmm. I live in, but it's all about what you make it. And when you don't have access to this example of a pool, you could literally put your feet up and listen to five minutes of Joe's podcast, right? (laughs) Built, not born. There's small things that you can do to create these little pockets of I don't want to call them escape because I don't want you to escape from your life, but these little pockets of play that Mm -hmm. you can give yourself to refuel just ounce by ounce so that you can do the F in gift, which is the forgiveness work. When you can forgive yourself, I know we're all taught in different religions and cultures, forgive other people. I believe that too. But I also believe that that's only half of the process. There are things that happen to us in our life, things that we got caught in, friendships we had. And we're like, why did we keep them as a friend? They Mm -hmm. drained my whole life. Or that ex-girlfriend or that ex-boyfriend, like all the things. And yeah, yeah, I forgive them. But then we still have baggage we're taking into the next part of our relationship because we didn't forgive ourselves for the part that we played in ignoring the signs or Mm. holding on longer. I had an old bishop who would say, part of the problem a lot of us have is you take five minute people and make them hour long conversations. Yeah. Right? It's just doing that. And then the T is taking action in that one Mm. step that you can do to create that boundary that you know is missing for you. I knew a huge boundary that was missing for me was self-care. Two things. One, thank you for sharing that gift analogy. I've never heard that before. One, you mentioned about five-minute people, 20-minute people. Jim Rohn, who's Tony Robbins, Darren mm-hmm. Hardy, like uh, Brian Tracy, all these the old school guys that are writing books and, not, and go on stages from in front of 50,000 people, they all have Jim Rohn as one of their mentors. Yeah. And Jim Rohn has a little skit he does during his live presentations you could YouTube. There's some people you have five-minute associates. Mm-hmm. And you would never spend an hour with them. Yeah. Like there are other people you would go to lunch with, but you wouldn't go to vacation with. Yeah. So they're each one. You have to figure out where this person fits in your life. Don't go on vacation who's someone you have like a five minute relationship with. Maybe right. someone talk at the mailbox, but you never got to dinner with them. You wouldn't really invite them yeah. into your house. You wouldn't, you don't want to go on a long walk with that person. Don't give minor things major time Absolutely. or make sure you get major things major time makes sense yeah is that what you're saying a little bit right no but i love the reframe on that joe i do something a visual because i'm very visual so i yeah. do something visually different with my clients where we talk about the parking lot in the building your parking lot people are probably those five minute conversations and then you have the foyer the living room the kitchen yeah if, if you're yeah. married to a woman which i know you are you know everything goes down in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. When the women are in the kitchen congregating, the men better stay on the other side unless you're invited in. Mm-hmm. Those conversations are intimate and they are deep. So yeah. it's really looking at not only who's in your building, but who's in that inner room. For me, it's the kitchen. And more importantly, who's at the table in that kitchen. And being really clear, you can have great people around you, but that doesn't mean they've all earned the right to be in that inner room nor at that table. Mm-hmm. So I hear you completely. Yeah. 
And one other thing you mentioned, you had that mini vacation mm-hmm. that where you, you walked across the apartment complex, you had 20 mm-hmm. minutes yourself, you're recharged. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, one of my favorite books is uh, Marcus Aurelius's uh, Meditations, The Roman Emperor. A Roman nice. Emperor, his diary. And, and basically one of the things he says, happier those that don't need to go to the mountains to, to feel good, where they can just close their eyes and, and be at peace in their mind, where they can yes. close their eyes for 20 seconds and have that mini vacation and feel refreshed yes. instead of, I got to get in a plane and I got to fly across the country to relax. Right. And they can relax right where they are. And he, he thought that was like a, a special gift that, that people had that were succeeding in life. It's a phenomenal gift to actually be able to be with yourself and still be at peace. Ah, so true. Moving on here to be respectful of your time. I want to move on to a part of the interview we call share your secrets. So our yeah. guests can get you know, guests can get to know you a little bit better as a person. How about author John Maxwell speaks of failing forward? Mm-hmm. What failure of yours set you up most for future success? Like looking back. Do you have a favorite failure? Oh, a favorite failure. Oh, Joe, that's a real good question. I don't know if it's a favorite, but it definitely was a big one. When my husband and I opened the doors of our company, we seeded May of 2017, but we opened a brick and mortar at the time, October. It was literally October 11th. And I went to a VIP day for how to market your business with about eight to 10 people in a room. And the advisor, the coach of that, VIP day, walked around with whatever little assignment she had us do. She looked at the paper and said, oh no, you don't need to do that. You need to be doing this. On the left side of the paper, I had what I was currently doing, which our company at at its inception was a staffing agency with a professional development arm, professional development and growth arm. And she said, with all of your experience and your background and all the things, you should be a consultant coach, some form of an advisor. And me and my rebellion, I told you about that rebellious spirit, right? I was like, what? Mm-mm. We done spent almost $65,000 on getting this company up and running. You better help me market what I got instead of telling me what I should do. She was right. We lost almost $100,000 in that first year of business. And actually in less than six to eight months, she was a hundred percent right. I was doing what made sense on paper, but it wasn't in alignment with my gifts, my talents, and my skills. She was a thousand percent right. That was a failure that I won't call it my favorite because it hurt, (laughs) but it was definitely a really, really good clarity one that would take me, because I'm rebellious, it took me a few more months to really appreciate the reality of what she shared. But Mm -hmm. once I got it, I got it. Right. Thanks for sharing that. You have a really busy schedule. When you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Well, up until about a few months ago, I would pull out my rebounder, which is like a miniature trampoline and jump on it for two to five minutes. But I love rebounding. Rebounding is fun. You could be as aggressive or as gentle as you want. And it's good on your 40 plus year old knees if that's what you're dealing with. (laughs) Sounds good. How about what book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Mm. I do. Wow, that's a good one. Oh, yes. I was trying to think of the full name. The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Never heard of that one. Yeah, It's actually a book that I put in our onboarding boxes to all of our clients, regardless of which program they're doing. Yeah. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. How about as you look out to the year ahead? What's the most exciting project you're working on now? 
Mm, Well, I took one of our nine-month intimacy amplifier programs for our power couples, and I made it more potent. I 10X'd it and condensed it to a three-month with a three-day retreat at the end, depending on the tier. Mm. And I'm really excited to get back into the in-person retreats because that unsolicited disruptive gift we call COVID Mm -hmm. stripped a lot of that away. And that's my happy place. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Awesome. You brought up COVID. What's the biggest lesson did you take from like that two-year shutdown that came out of nowhere and shut the world, turned the world upside down? What's your biggest lesson from the COVID-19 shutdown? Yeah, honestly, how sexy it is to work with my husband at home. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. I know a lot of people struggle with that, but we were able to create new traditions and new routines with him being home full-time. And that it, it honestly amplified our relationship. Very cool. How about you mentioned your kids? What type of values you try to pass on your kids? I tell them first and foremost, that normal is not necessary. It is not necessary to try to fit in anybody's box. And most of the problems they've ever experienced was because they were trying to be normal instead of leaning into all of the weird, peculiar, special parts of them that make them so great. That's one of my favorite. And it's the one that comes up often because they're 21 and almost 26. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they they don't want to listen to mom and dad in the same way that they used to. You know, normal, I love that. Normal is not necessary. If you look at like anyone famous, mm-hmm. anyone, they're not normal. Yeah. Like normal mean they don't, their music isn't normal. The right. way they speak isn't normal. What they mm-hmm. do isn't normal. What they post on social media isn't normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's normal is so average and, if, yes. and it just blends in with the crowd. It takes courage though, right? To be like idiosyncratic and to be like a little different, maybe speak mm-hmm. a little different or do something different something even as little as this podcast. Like when I hit put the first one out there, I'm like, this is so weird. And so many people are going to laugh and oh my gosh, I have no business doing this. And it's like, I can imagine like when you publish your book, like you publish mm-hmm. your book, like who are you to publish a book? You know what I mean? Yes. And then it's like, it goes on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's all these rankings, all these reviews, mm-hmm. you know, and it helps a lot of people. It's, you can't be normal, right? You cannot be normal unless that's what you aspire to be. How about wrapping up here? If people listening could take one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that one lesson be? I would say if your self-care and self-love practices, whatever they look like, are not selfish, you're doing it wrong. That is powerful. How about, here's a fun question. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. If you could spend a day with any historical figure, alive or dead, who would it be? Woo. Oh, Joe, you are serious with these questions today. I love it. It's hard for people to stump me. and You've done it three times already. Let's see. Historical figure. Mm. I would have to say... I would love to spend the day with Whitney Houston. Oh, I'd be cool. Yes. I think she was just compacted with so much wisdom that was suffocated under her trauma. And I would just love to just share space with her. So maybe the greatest voice, ever, one of the greatest voices ever. Like that, that national anthem she sang at the Super Bowl at something after the first Gulf War. I mean, the best rendition ever. 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 
So good. So good. Oh, wow. That, that's a great one. Last two questions. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table that you said really wasn't there, but around that house mm-hmm. when you're nine, 10, 12 years old, mm-hmm. what would you want to tell them? If I could go back, I think I would tell each of them the same thing. What, it's okay that you're hurt. And you don't have to hurt people just because you've been hurt. It's okay to be different. It's okay to change. It's okay to not fall in line with what was expected of you. What somebody somewhere told you that you weren't good enough. You are worthy and deserving of a healthy, whole life. And you can create more than more trauma. That's powerful. Last question. Nikita. If you had to get a quote mm-hmm. or a saying mm-hmm. tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Oh, I won't use intentionally selfish because you know that's my leading. That's everything. Mm-hmm. That would be first, but okay. for this purpose, I'm going to go a little deeper and say, live in the space of the and in parentheses A and D, because I truly feel that when you live in that space, you get to play out and you get to live fully when you choose and instead of or. Live in the space of and. Mm -hmm. So instead of either or both. Yes. That is about as good as a spot to end as any. Uh, Nikita Ren Thigpen, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Honor to speak with you. Fantastic. If people were looking for you and what you do online, your courses, your books, where can they find you? Go to my LinkedIn profile, which is just Nikita Thigpen, and connect with me. Let's have tea first and foremost. And if you're ready to play and go a little deeper and have a a meeting meeting, then you can go to thigpro.com. So LinkedIn or your website, thigpro.com. The book is Selfish Permission to Pause, Live, Love, and Laugh Your Own Way, available on Amazon. Nikita, great to speak with you. Thanks for coming on the show. It was awesome. A great time. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Joe, I appreciate the Philly love. So thank you.